At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. My name is Jonathan Holmes, and I get the uh, great privilege to be the student pastor of the college and student pastor here at Wildwood. That may sound like a mouthful, and it is, college and student pastor, but uh, I, that, that just simply means I serve with families from sixth grade through college ministry. And so, but I don't do this alone. You might be thinking that's impossible. It is. Like to talk to an 11-year-old and talk to a 21-year-old, they're different creatures. It, it, it's insane. I have a team I get the privilege of working with, and so let me just brag on them for a second. We have incredible volunteers who, who take hours every week investing in the lives of next generation. And then we have staff members, Sierra Moore and Naomi Reyes. We have Abe Maynard, and we have Chris Frakes, who serve in multiple ways throughout the week, investing in the next generation so that we might see them follow Jesus to the glory of God. It's a, it's a great privilege. I, I love seeing students catch on to the vision that Jesus is not just for their parents, but he's for them. And that they take that faith and they take steps walking with Christ. Uh, if you don't know my family, uh, I'm married to Amber. Uh, we've been married for about eight years, almost nine. I've been at Wildwood for about six years. And uh, we have two kids, Quinn, who's four, and Oliver, who's two. You'll hear a story about Oliver and his obsession with football, right? I can fit in in Norman now, right? But his obsession with football in, uh, in just a few minutes. Uh, I'm going to continue in the series that Mark Robinson, our senior pastor, launched last week called Relating to. And uh, last week, Mark talked about, and it, it, this is part of a larger walkthrough of our Gospel of Matthew, but last week we saw the importance of childlike humility being the entrance to the kingdom, and also how Jesus taught us how to care for children. Now, Mark is in Brazil this week, and uh, you, you need to notice that he got to teach on children. I get temptation, right? Okay, his email is Mark Robinson at Wild... I'm just kidding. In our series, Relating to, we're taking this chunk of Scripture, Matthew 18 through 20, where Jesus is speaking about his followers uh, and, and how they relate to certain things in their life. And so he's focusing this teaching on his disciples. And this morning we're going to focus in on temptation. And I would like to start with a DTR moment. Now if you are not a millennial, you're like, I don't know what that means. It's okay. It's, it means define the relationship, okay? This became popular because of Facebook. And it was when it became Facebook official that it became a relationship, okay? So DTR, your relationship to temptation, my relationship to temptation, it's complicated. It's just complicated. When we think of the word temptation, we come up with tons of different definitions. Is it sin? When does temptation change into a sin? Can we avoid temptation? Do we like bird box this thing and ignore all temptation? What do we do with temptation? It's complicated, right? It really, it really is but it's a delight to share with you this morning the important, important topic on temptation. So if you have your Bible, or if you have version open, or your phone, Matthew 18, and we're going to be in verses 7 through 9. 
And as you turn there, I'd like to show you just my brief outline. Matthew 18, 7 through 9. We're going to pick up where Mark left off. But when we're thinking about relating to temptation, there's a couple things we need to look at. First, in verse 7, we're going to see we are called to not tempt others, period, right? He makes the case strong, and we look back in verse 6. And then the second thing is, what do we do when sin inevitably comes, okay? Or when temptation inevitably comes. So Matthew 18, starting in verse 7, says this. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Would you pray with me? Father, I, I, I pause and I reflect on your holiness, your righteousness, Lord, and, 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 and we are amidst a world of sin and of temptation. Lord, I pray that your word would be clear, that your spirit would be moving and active in the hearts and minds of the believers here, and that today we would take a step, either overcoming temptation or delighting in your son, Jesus Christ, this morning. May your word, may your son be glorified this morning. Amen. The first thing we need to look at is don't tempt others. That's where our passage starts. Now, I remember, I don't know the exact context of this, but I remember reading this story. This is, this is one of the few times I remember reading my Bible when I was really young. I mean, I'm talking before middle school. I, I, I read my Bible actually fairly often, but I just don't remember what I read or what I journaled about. But this one I remember. And I think it's pretty, it's pretty safe to understand why, right? It's pretty easy. It, because as a, I don't know, let's say eight-year-old, ten-year-old, reading this story, I'm thinking, I'm to what? Jesus, you want me to do what? Like my mom and dad have said, you follow Jesus. And I'm like, but I like my hands. He just said, cut them off, right? Like, I mean, the literal self in me is going, uh-oh, like, I don't know what to do with this. I thought this was crazy, right? That this is, there's no way that this is in the Bible. But then I find out later on, Matthew 5, starting in verse 27, that this is, just, this is not just a one-time occurrence, so 527, oh, I think I wrote down the wrong, nope, I'm just in the wrong spot. 527, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in, in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This is not a one-time occurrence, right? So not only does Jesus use radical language, he uses it multiple times. This should draw our attention. What is Jesus trying to tell us this morning? 
See, my amazement when I was younger is maybe what some of you are feeling this morning. What is Jesus calling me to do? With such radical language, what, what could he be meaning? And I would like to break down this passage phrase by phrase and really look at what the Spirit might be calling each of us to do this morning. And so in our passage, Jesus is not speaking of lust. He is speaking of temptation or sin in general. Okay? And he starts in verse 7 by saying this. So this is Matthew 18, verse 7. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom temptations come. So Jesus pronounces two woes. And the first is woe to the world. The second is woe to the one by whom temptation comes. So woe, and this is not him casting down judgment. This is him expressing his clear disapproval. Okay? There's two ways to take this passage. It's one to declare judgment. The other is to see it as him deploring the world. It's deplorable how we exist today. Then he says this interesting phrase, and I really didn't know what to do with this until I, until I studied it. And says, for it is necessary that temptations come. You know what my gut reaction is to that? Why? Why? Like, it's the question, I get this with middle schoolers all the time. Why is there a tree? And then the adults are like, because there is. God did it. And you like try to get it right. You're like, escape. You're like, what? I, oh my goodness. And then you're like, you're opening up MacArthur Study Bible. You're jumping in. You're like, why is there a tree? But why is there temptation, Right? Temptations must come. Jesus expressing his complete disapproval, but he says it is necessary that temptations come. He says, woe to the world, for it is necessary that temptations come. It is in fact necessary that temptations come because they are a consequence of the fallen world. While Satan continues in his power and malice today, we shall be tempted. Until death or Christ's return, temptation exists. It's impossible for the believer to live on earth and to not be tempted. Jesus woes a second time, but he directs this one to the one by whom the temptation comes. And then Mark read this last week, and it's in verse 6, so right before us. And it says, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. See, there's a, it's necessary for temptations to come, but that doesn't absolve anyone of their actions. It's necessary that temptations come, but that doesn't mean they have to come through you. The world is a place of temptation, but we are not called to tempt. This is a special pronouncement of judgment in verse 6 on those who tempt others, especially or specifically that of a child. In summary, it is a big deal to tempt others, and temptation is a big deal. It's a big deal to tempt others, to be the source of temptation for someone else, and temptation is a big deal. Yes, temptation is a natural product of the fallen. Yes, temptation will inevitably come in this life. No, that does not lighten your actions. No, that does not lighten your responsibility to not tempt others. 
Now, there are two questions that I'd like to answer because, again, I, I said temptation, it's complicated, right? And so I want to answer two questions before we get any farther in our passage. The first question is, what is temptation? What is temptation? And that will inevitably give us what it is not. But John Owen wrote one of the quintessential works on temptation. I love his definition. It's at times confusing, but it's beautiful. Temptation, then, in general, is anything, state, way, condition, that upon any account whatsoever has a force or efficacy to seduce, to draw the mind and heart of a man from its obedience, which God requires of him, into any sin, in any degree of it whatsoever. Temptation is anything that causes you to sin, gives you an opportunity to sin, or even distracts you from obedience. Okay? So laziness would be a temptation. As you walk with Christ, as you are following him, notice that it's active, that our our relationship with Christ should always be active. As we are following Christ, temptation is described, like Mark did last week, as a stumbling block. It is a distraction. It's something to trip you up in your walk with Christ, to prevent you from following or trusting in Christ, and to stumble into temptation, or to stumble into sin. James 1.15 says, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. I, I read that because some may think temptation is sin. Temptation is not sin. Temptation is inevitable. Sin is not. And temptation is not sin. Temptation will inevitably come in this world because it has fallen. And we must notice that Jesus was tempted, but without sin. Our definition of temptation must not include sin. Temptation is the lure, it's the hook, it's the trap that deceives and causes us to stumble. Causes us to distrust in God who has the plan and to trust in ourselves sinfully or selfishly. The second question that I'd like to answer is where does temptation come from? See, if we are commanded to not be the source of temptation, where does temptation come from in this world? Does it just simply come from the world? In James 1, 13 through 14, so just a couple verses in front of what we just read, it says this, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Temptation can be both, internal and external, but it can never be from God. Okay, so the second part of maybe our definition or a help of understanding what is temptation is temptation is both internal and external, but it can never be from God. It can never be from God. The difference between temptation and testing is the goal, okay? So there's times in Scripture where we see that, that God tested a believer. And so one of the examples that you might think of is Job. But here's a, here's a couple things, the differences in fleshing this out between temptation and testing. Temptation, temptation is the enticement to evil. 
The goal of temptation is evil. It's to, for you to enter into distrust with God. It's a stumbling block on your walk with Christ. The temptation is pushing you towards evil. Second, the goal of testing is that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James 1.4 The goal of testing is to prove is to prove what's inside. The goal of testing is to prove righteousness, to show righteousness. So one of the examples is Job's life. Satan, seeking to incite Job to curse God, intends evil. He intends to cause Job to stumble. God, seeking to demonstrate the integrity of his servant, intends righteousness intends righteousness. The same circumstance, but two completely and totally different goals. Temptation and testing. It it comes internally, it comes externally, but it never comes from God. It is found inside of us, as it says in James 1.14. Temptation emerges from inside the darkness or evil of our hearts, our fallen nature. It it rises inside of us, and we think, where did this desire come from? Where, where, did, where did this thought come from? And you're sickened by it. It's a sinful nature you're warring against. It also comes externally from the world or from Satan. We see many times in Scripture, we see it specifically in the garden, the first story of temptation through the serpent, Satan. And we see it in the victory of Christ in the desert with the temptation of Satan. So it comes from Satan specifically or his demons, but it comes generically from the fallen world. It's a product of sin. Temptation naturally arises where sin dwells. So the second part of the message this morning is what do we do when temptation inevitably comes? So the fact that temptation exists internally, which is kind of terrifying, and externally, what do we do with temptation? As believers who are called to follow Jesus to the glory of God, how are we called to battle temptation? And let me remind you what Jesus said in verse 8 and 9. I'm pretty sure it's stuck in your head, but let me remind you again. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See, Oliver, my son, loves to play catch. I have not found the end to his desire to throw a football back and forth. Okay, now he has a cannon, right? I mean, if you're not watching, he will pelt you. And it's like he's aiming for your face, right? And you're like, there's no way he's that good of an aim, but yet he does. But he's still, and because he's a two-year-old, he struggles to catch the ball, okay? And so when I throw it to him, I'm like, I, I'm trying to not aim for the face because I'll probably, I'm going to hit him because he's just sitting, you know, and he's getting better. But so as I'm trying to teach him how to catch this ball, I say, buddy, you got to have your eye on the ball. And he's like, okay. 
wow, wow, I'm a great father, right? And so I like rear back, look at him, I'm like eye on the ball. But as I'm throwing him, it's, it's, it's like a foam ball, okay? So before you're like really upset, the foam ball, foam football, dollar store, believe it or not, they're a dollar. So I'm throwing them and, and I look at him as I'm throwing this and he has this the most determined look you can have as a two-year-old, right? I mean, his one eye is like sticking out, and he's like, he's like, I've got this. Daddy said, keep your eye on the ball. And I'm thinking, oh, I should have explained that better as I'm throwing this, and just bam, right, right in the eye, right? And I'm like, well, this is not my proudest moment, but I'm thinking, he took that literally. He was, man, my son's, he's an obedient son, right? I love this guy. But but what I didn't explain is, 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 is that isn't supposed to be taken literally. I'm not, I'm not asking him to grab the football and put his eye on it. Keep your eye on the ball. I mean, it's something completely different here. And so the question we have to ask is, should we take Jesus literally? Do we take Jesus literally here? There's rumors in church history of those who did take Jesus literally. You can read those yourself. I'm not going to share But should we take Jesus literally? No! Please, no! Okay? I can just imagine Mark getting off the airplane and him looking at his phone and being shown all of these situations that arose when the student pastor taught. And he taught this passage literally. Jesus is not speaking literally. He's using hyperbole. And he's exaggerating a statement to make his point. He does this many times through his ministry, multiple times, but he's trying to make a point, so he uses an exaggeration. Does Jesus literally want you to cut off your hand or cut off your feet? No. Does this passage promote self-mutilation? No. Even as a young boy, I was like, what? Like, not sure what to do with this. But the tragic fact is, right when I say that, we all kind of go, okay, good. Most people then completely ignore the verse. So we ask the question, are we to take him literally? And we say, well, no. And so we take this collective sigh of relief and decide there's no need to ask further questions. We, we have to ask, what does Jesus mean then? We can't just be like, well, I got my uh, temptation out of free card, right? Like, I can ignore that now. Thanks, that's a cool passage, but it doesn't have anything to do with me because John said it's not literal, Right? We don't take him literally, but we must take Jesus seriously. It's completely different. We don't take Jesus literally here, but we take him extremely seriously. So we have to ask, what does he mean? What does Jesus mean when he says it's better to cut off your limb and and enter into eternal life than to be cast into eternal, to enter hell physically whole? Jesus means that we are to radically cut sin out of our lives. Jesus means that we are to radically cut sin out of our lives. Jesus is saying that anything, literally anything that causes you to sin and therefore negatively impacts your relationship with God, you need to cut that out. Stop making excuses. I can control it. I can do this. It's okay. It happened one time. Cut it out, right? Get it out of there because It's better to enter into the kingdom of heaven, making sacrifice, than to enter hell pleasantly. Jesus is using powerful and an emphatic analogy to encourage us to cut off sin before it overcomes us. 
So the question that comes to mind is, what seems to regularly trip you up in your relationship with God? Jesus is asking us to examine our lives and what is causing you to stumble in your relationship with Christ. And he's saying you need to take radical measures to cut that out. Not like, okay, see if you can make it work out. You can still have it in your life, but still have a relationship. He's saying, cut it out. It's not worth it. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of heaven. Hurt. Cut it out. We are to take radical steps to remove this temptation. But Jesus was not teaching self-mutilation. He was teaching sin mutilation. He was saying, destroy it. Cut it out. It might hurt to make a sacrifice or to change a job or to end a relationship or to stop doing an activity, but you must cut it out. And that leads to radical changes. So what are some radical steps that believers are called to remove temptation? And so I want to, the the passage was, was fairly short. The thing that gets our attention is this, cut your hands off, cut your feet off, because it's better to enter into heaven, right? And we hear that and we say, oh, yeah, but I'm being serious. He was. He just wasn't being literal. So when you hear that you're not to donate your limbs to sanctification, you're still to donate your lives. We're still called to, to live a life of holiness. And to think that a life of holiness does not require sacrifice is not Christianity. To think a life of holiness is just this life of free grace. Grace came at a cost, and it cost Jesus his life. And he says, if anyone's going to follow me, you must pick up your cross and follow me. That we have to remove temptation with radical measure. So the first, and there's there's four steps that you can take. They're not really, it's not a four-step plan to be Removed from temptation. That's impossible. You will always face temptation. The, as you live in this world, you'll always face temptation. Here's four things I thought through, I read through, as I thought about how to battle temptation, how to war against sin in our lives. And the first is watch and pray. And I didn't make it up. I'm stealing from Jesus. Okay? Matthew 26, 41. And this is the most practical and powerful advice for temptation. When you hear the word temptation, the first thing that you should come to your mind is not, is it sin, is it not, the the garden, all of those things are good, or Jesus in the desert. You should first think, watch and pray. Okay? Matthew 26, 41. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Man, I wish that could spend like an hour for us talking about that, right? Like talking about watching, keeping a watch on our lives, talking about praying, how we engage in the spiritual battle with prayer and how the spirit and the flesh are at war even inside of us. But I only have a couple minutes. So the first, let me make three remarks, okay? And it's on these three specific words. And later on, you, you need to understand that as we have gone through the gospel of Matthew, Mark will be covering actually this passage later on this year. So the first word is watch. And this means to literally guard. Jesus is prescribing spirit alertness. To keep a watch on your eye. And you know what that's going to require of us? To look at our lives. 
I love the quote that, you know, we can understand our lives by reflecting, but we have to live our lives moving forward. The importance of reflection cannot be, cannot be overstated. You need to look at your life. Why are you falling into sin and temptation? Why are you giving in to these desires? Why last year did you start super strong in January? I'm going to read my Bible every day. January 3rd, you stopped. Why? Start again. There's grace. January 1st isn't the call to read your Bible. Today is. See, the call to a righteous life even is today. So you, but you must be watchful on your life. You're not going to know how to take a step with Christ unless you are looking to Christ and then looking at yourself and saying, where are areas of my life that I am not being an image, image bearer of Christ, that I'm showing my sin? The second is to pray. And I cannot say enough about the importance of prayer in the believer's life, especially when we think of temptation. For some Upon salvation, temptation miraculously goes away, and that is a gift of God. It is a gracious gift. Normally, temptation is something we war against, maybe for the rest of our lives. Maybe for the rest of our lives, we're called to make war against temptation. Pray, not merely for the temptation to go away and then to get frustrated when it doesn't, but pray that your heart would be changed, changed to crave what you need most. See, oftentimes we say, Lord, take this from me. But that, that's a good prayer, right? I've, I pray that. But what I don't pray as often is, Lord, help my heart to crave you more than it craves this. More than it craves when someone gives me an attaboy and says, good job, buddy. Like, don't call me buddy, but like, good job, Right? Like, I'm like, yeah, I love that. that. I feel that acceptance. But Lord, help me crave your acceptance. Live into your acceptance more than that. So it's, it's good to pray, Lord, take this from me, but pray that your heart would change to crave what you need most. The second is this idea of spirit versus flesh. And I love this passage. Pastor Brian brought it up to me in passing. It says, Galatians 5, 16 through 17, Just listen to these words. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. We crave and desire to do things that we should not want to do. But it's not merely discipline. It's submitting our lives to the Spirit residing in us. It's living a Spirit-filled life and asking the Lord to continually to work in your life through His Spirit. The second step or thing that you could think about this morning or apply is do not enter. Oftentimes you hear of Christians speaking of temptation as falling into temptation. We use that phrase like we use the term falling into love. But that's not what we read in Scripture. We use the term fall into temptation, but yet we see the direction of our prayers is to lead us not into temptation. It is entering into temptation that we are to pray against, not fall. We are given an opportunity to pursue sin. It is not merely, oh, well, I'm falling again. It's a step. It is a physical step towards sin 
and away from Christ. Do not enter. Not entering temptations means we must put limits in our lives to keep us away from the entrances of places, peoples, people, or ideas that could, you, that could cause us to sin. We are to be aware of these entrances and to flee them. We are to be aware of the opportunities to enter into temptation. And we are, to, we are called to avoid them. We are to be aware of these entrances and to not enter. And to pray and to plead that God would help us. The strength of overcoming temptations traps comes before, not during the moment of weakness. So what are some of the temptation entrances in your life that are still open but need to be closed? What are these things in your life that are just opportunities for you to enter into sin? They're they're doors of temptation. You're like, yeah, but I kind of need that in my life. I I need that there. I need that, that, that phone, that app, that relationship, that person, that activity. Insert whatever you're dealing with. And we make excuses and excuses and excuses to keep just a part of it in our lives. Jesus says, don't keep a part. He says, cut it off. The third is curbing the appetite. Have you ever been working on something and you just, like, you're, you're, you're pounding away, right? You're doing, you're doing your task, whatever it is. A lot of times for me, it's like writing a message. And then you just, it hits you. You're like, ah, oh, I, don't, I don't feel very good. And your stomach tells you why. And you're like, oh, wow, I didn't eat lunch. Right? It's like 3 p.m. or 4 p.m. And I, I didn't even think about eating. You were so overwhelmed by the task that you had that you forgot you had an appetite. Russell Moore says it this way, God did not design human beings to eat on the basis of reason alone. The appetites are there to drive us toward what we need. The appetite of hunger shows us our need for nutrition. If we were just pure rational or logical beings, we would say things like, based on my calculations, my fat intake is dangerously low, right? We don't, that's weird. Don't, if you say that, like, help, get help, okay? Or my hydration, sorry, I wrote this one down. I just thought it was funny. My hydration reserves are alarmingly diminished. I need to find a hydration. That's so, just stop. Appetites point us to nourishment. It's, It's not always rational or logical, but Appetites point us to something that we desire or crave. God created us with these appetites. The fallen nature, our sinful nature, has moved those appetites away from God's plan and into sinful desires. Those natural appetites are then caused and moved by our habits or by our sin to crave what is not best for us. I love this phrase in our passage. It is better for you. It is better for you. It's better for you to cut out, make sacrifice, move away from temptation than it is to enter into hell. It is better for you. In temptation, we don't always know what is better for us. Trust in Christ. Some of you probably feel your particular temptation or your specific circumstance is kind of freakish. It's too far. You don't understand what I'm going through. You don't understand what I crave or what I, what I need. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 shows us our sinful mindset. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. 
but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. No matter what you are struggling against, God has always promised to be faithful. I bet you missed that in the middle. God is faithful. Even when you're faithless, even when you're doubting, even when you're filled with shame, God is faithful. He is the promise keeper. Now the final one, and the most important one, is your victory is not inside yourself. Your victory is in Christ. Victory in Christ. You can look inside of yourself and try to figure out how to solve your problems But your solution is in Christ. We are called to flee temptation countless times in Scripture. But when we flee, we don't just avoid the thing we're fleeing from. We flee to where we find safety. In temptation, we are called to cut out sin, but we are called to flee to Christ. He is our stronghold. He is our salvation. Here I know that in the lost condition, I could have never helped myself against Satan. But that is the victory of Jesus Christ, which I now share in. Jesus was tempted and tried in every way we are, but who was never anything but triumphant. Adam was tempted and failed. Jesus was tempted and was victorious. He is the perfect high priest and shares our nature and intercedes for us. The last passage I want to read this morning. Hebrews 4.16 Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Oftentimes, temptation leads us away from Christ. We feel ashamed and guilty, even the feeling of temptation, the craving of that. But friends, let temptation be a reminder that you need Christ. You not only need His victory, you need Him. You need that relationship. And let temptation push you Christ as a reminder that He is worthy of our affection. Not that thing that's making false promises. Cut it out. Pursue Christ and live with Him. So when I think of relating to temptation, as believers, we are called to take radical measures. We are called to take radical measures to remove it from our lives. Lest we be Sources of temptation for others. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the incredible opportunity to open up your word, to be changed by it, to be moved by it. Lord, I pray that we would rest in your Son, Jesus Christ. He has overcome our temptation, He has the victory. Lord, we pursue him, and as we pursue him, may we see the truth of temptation. That you, Almighty God, that you are worthy of our affections and our desires, and you alone. It's in your son's beautiful name, the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.